Good morning. I want to invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 7 through 9 this morning. That TV animated special, A Charlie Brown Christmas, first debuted back in 1965, and since then it's become a Christmas tradition in many homes. It's becoming one in ours, and in the very first dialogue in that movie, I'm assuming you've all seen this, right? Okay. You with me? Very first dialogue, Charlie Brown laments to Linus, I think there must be something wrong with me, Linus. Christmas is coming, but I'm not happy. I don't feel the way I'm supposed to feel. I just don't understand Christmas, I guess. I like getting presents and sending Christmas cards and decorating trees and all that, but I'm still not happy. I always end up feeling depressed. And Linus replies, Charlie Brown, you're the only person I know who can take a wonderful season like Christmas and turn it into a problem. Maybe Lucy's right. Of all the Charlie Browns in the world, you're the Charlie Browniest. Do you ever feel like Charlie Brown? During this time of year, you have that thought, I, I don't know if I feel the way I'm supposed to feel. There, there is a way I understand I ought to feel during this time of year, and I, I want to feel that way, but I don't know if I do feel that way. Christmas is supposed to be a time of joy and wonder and awe, especially for you as a Christian, but do you ever feel like you're faking it? Does your affection for God ever wane? Does your zeal ever grow cold? Does your faith ever feel weak? The, The book of Hebrews is addressed to Christians who were wavering in their faith. Many in this original audience were weary, they were stagnant, they were burned out. The author of Hebrews warns them to not drift away from the gospel in chapter 2, to not neglect the gospel just a couple verses later. He often urges them in this book to hold fast to their confidence and their hope, chapter 4 and chapter 10, to not shrink back, chapter 10 again. He encourages them to not grow weary or lose heart. Those are the kinds of things you say to people who are growing weary and losing heart, whose love is growing cold. There were some even in the original audience who were in serious danger of hard-hearted unbelief because there are strong warnings against that in chapter 3. Some were in danger of high-handed disobedience, just willfully walking away from the faith altogether. What is it that Christians in that kind of situation need to hear? What do Christians who are weary with the burdens and the pressures and the challenges of life, discouraged, some of them were even persecuted, tempted to give up. What do they need to hear? What would you say to them to encourage them? Or maybe more personally, where do you direct your own heart when your soul is dry, when your faith is weak, when you feel like Charlie Brown? I I don't feel the way I'm supposed to feel? Where do you point your own soul when your joy is depleted? I'm sure you also are familiar with the wisdom of Buddy the Elf, who said the best way to spread Christmas cheer is... I I knew you'd know that. 
the author of Hebrews has even better counsel for us than Buddy the Elf. Singing is a great thing to do when you're down, but there's more. The author of Hebrews intends to increase your joy in Jesus by by convincing you that there's no one and there is nothing in the universe better than Jesus. And, And that project that he sets out on in this book of Hebrews, it's instructive to us because it means for us the way to preserve joy and the way to persevere in faith is to see and see again and see again that Jesus is unrivaled. That's how you preserve your faith and your joy by beholding Jesus as the matchless king. And it's something we know, but it's something we need to behold and believe and trust. Enduring joy in Jesus comes from seeing Jesus as the unrivaled king. Let me say that again. Enduring joy in Jesus only comes from seeing Jesus as the unrivaled king. And and how do you prove that one thing is superior to all other things. Well, you you put it up against the best. That's how champions are crowned. The World Cup final is happening right now as we speak. How do you win the World Cup? You beat all the other teams who have beaten the other teams. You have to beat the best to be the best. College football playoffs start New Year's Eve. NFL playoffs start in January. This is how we crown champions. You have to beat the best. The Vikings can win some games. We're not sure if they're the best. (laughs) The the author of Hebrews, he proves the supremacy of Jesus by comparing him throughout this book, first to angels, then to Moses, then to the old covenant priesthood and temple and sacrificial system. We heard about that last week, how Jesus is not just the high priest. He is our great high priest. The author of Hebrews uses the word better 12 times throughout this letter. It's a major theme. He speaks of a better hope, a better covenant, enacted on better promises, better sacrifices, better and eternal possessions, a better and heavenly home, resurrection to a better life, and the blood of Jesus that speaks a better word. He says in chapter three, verse three, Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses. He is our great high priest, our great shepherd, That's the project, the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews 1, the author begins by proving that Jesus is superior to angels. Listen to verses 3 through 4. This just sets the stage for our text. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. He is Superior to angels. His name is more excellent than theirs. The supremacy and the excellency of Jesus, the Son of God. That's the point of Hebrews 1. And so for the sake of our joy in Jesus, this Advent and forever, I want to give our attention this morning to Hebrews 1, verses 7 through 9. And out of our regard for God's word, would you stand with me if you're able as we receive this word From God. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. 
The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Let's pray. Father, we do receive your word by faith, trusting, believing, treasuring every word that comes from your mouth. You give us life according to your word. You reveal the glories of Jesus through your word. And you do that for the sake of our joy in Jesus. And so would you cause us to know and feel in our hearts what is appropriate in response to the glories of Jesus, our King, as revealed here in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's my aim this morning to help you linger over this revelation of the supremacy of Jesus. Jesus is supreme. He is more excellent. He is unrivaled. He is the royal son of God. And as we linger over that reality, meditate on it, think about it, even if you already know it in your head, as you ponder that, your confidence and your joy in Jesus is strengthened and sustained. That's what happens in the book of Hebrews. And we're going to look at four aspects of Jesus' unrivaled glory revealed here in this passage in particular. His divine nature, his eternal reign, his righteous rule, and his universal supremacy. First, his divine nature. Jesus is unrivaled because Jesus is God. Verse 8, but of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. God the Father is the one doing the talking. This comes in a string of passages cited in the first chapter of Hebrews, Old Testament passages, and all of them are attributed, no matter who the human author was in Scripture, they're all attributed to God because it's Scripture and it's God-breathed. And so who's the one speaking? God. And he's talking to the Son. And the Father says to the Son, your throne, O God, is forever. God the Father addresses the Son as God. Now, Hebrews 1, 8 and 9 is a quotation of Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. And that psalm was originally written as a celebration of a wedding of some majestic, glorious, mighty king from the line of David. And what's perplexing about Psalm 45 is how the psalmist back then could say to a human king, your throne, O God, is forever. In fact, it's so perplexing that there are some translations that just avoid that wording altogether and figure that can't possibly be what it's supposed to say. Because why would the psalmist have called a king from the line of David God? So there are English translations that say things like, your throne is of God forever, or God is your throne forever. But in the end, none of those attempts do justice to the Hebrew grammar and language. The best explanation is that in that original context, the psalmist spoke to the king in this way because the king represented God and he received all of his authority from God. It's a lot like Exodus 7, 1, where God says to Moses, see, I have made you like God to Pharaoh and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. Moses, of course, is not God, but he really does represent God to Pharaoh and to the people of Israel. He 
spoke God's very words and he spoke them with God's very own authority. And so God could figuratively say to Moses, I have made you like God. You are functioning in this way as my representative. Just like Adam was made in the image of God to represent God and rule the world under God, so the king of Israel represented God, represented God's rule and reign over his people. However, when the author of Hebrews cites Psalm 45, 6, it's clear that this text takes on a whole new meaning, deeper, richer, fuller than anyone ever imagined. Hebrews says that Psalm 45 is about Jesus. And when Psalm 45 comes true in Jesus, it is more real, more true. It's not figurative anymore. He's not simply like God as a representative of God. He is God, truly and actually and literally. He is God. And the author of Hebrews leaves no doubt about that. He says in opening verses of this chapter, Jesus is the one through whom God created the world. He's the very radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of his nature. He's the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. And then he goes on to quote Old Testament passages that are undoubtedly about Yahweh God. Go back and read the text in the Old Testament. They are about the Lord, all caps, L-O-R-D, Yahweh. And the author of Hebrews says this is about the Son. He is God. In Hebrews 1.6, he says, again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. That's from Deuteronomy 32, talking about the Lord delivering his people and God's angels worshiping God. And Hebrews says that's about the Son, worthy of the worship of angels. Verse 10, he cites Psalm 102.25, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning and the heavens are the work of your hands. And he says that's about the Son. So you know that Jesus is God. I'm not telling you anything new there. But this is meant to secure your joy and your confidence in Jesus when your faith is wavering. How many times have you let, been let down by humans? Could be somebody close to you. Could be somebody in a position of influence and power. From athletes and actors to politicians, pastors, humans let us down over and over and over again. Just think how often you hear people make excuses for themselves by appealing to their human nature. We say things like, I'm only human. That, that just means, what did you expect? I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to fail you. I'm not perfect. I'm doing my best, but we're all weak. Nobody can actually satisfy you. But the fact that Jesus is God means he will never fail you in those ways. His promises will never turn out to be merely empty campaign promises. His kingdom will never be ruined by scandal. His reputation is never going to be tarnished by moral failure. He will never fail you. He is God. He is unrivaled because he's God. And when you trust him as God, your joy will be strengthened and sustained. Second, consider his eternal reign. Jesus is unrivaled because he reigns forever. Look at verse 8 again. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Throne is just a shorthand way of referring to the, the entirety of the king's authority. His power, his dominion, his rule and reign. It's similar to the way that we commonly refer to the U.S. president by referring to the place where he resides. We speak of 
the White House, or we refer to the Oval Office. So recent news article stated, the White House says the U.S. is strong enough to avoid a recession. Of course, the building doesn't talk. The building says no such thing. Houses don't speak. It's talking about the administration, the president, or whoever's speaking on his behalf. So here, the, the point is not the permanence of the ceremonial chair the king sits in, but the permanence of the king himself, his rule, his authority, his dominion, his authority will last forever, which makes him the unrivaled source of joy and security to all his people. You know what dampens our joy like a wet blanket? It's always that thought that the source of our joy, the thing that we are enjoying, is about to come to an end. So students right now are entering Christmas break. Congratulations if you're a student. Doesn't that feel good? You adults, you, you remember what that feels like, don't you? When you're a kid, just how, wow, two weeks off of school? That's like forever. Three weeks. Congratulations. Wow. I, don't take this personally, but I remember as a kid, when you do that math and you remember, oh, no, I'm going back to school soon and then sooner. And then it's tomorrow. You know that feeling on the school night after a break? It just, ah, just steals your joy when you think about it coming to an end. On the other hand, longevity, permanence, endurance, that is impressive. I mean, think about names and sports that just Jack Nicholas, Tom Brady, Nolan Ryan, Gordy Howe, Wayne Gretzky, guys who just had these incredible careers, and they weren't just great one time, but over and over and over and over, like forever it seemed, and even that came to an end. As a kid, I lived in Chicago when the Bulls were winning world championships with Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen. I remember the, the t-shirts and the hats everybody had in 1992, back to back. That's impressive. And then the shirts in 1993 said, Three-peat, which is a cute play on words. Just amazing to be great over and over again. Nobody wants fleeting joy. We want joy that lasts. It's not going anywhere. That's what we have in Jesus, whose throne is forever and ever. Isaiah 9, that famous Christmas passage that says, to us a child is born, to us a son is given. It goes on to say, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. You get that? He came. He was born. He began to rule and reign. He is ruling and reigning. And the increase of his government will never stop. Ever. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The eternal duration of the son's rule and reign. That, that is one of the defining characteristics of his kingship. It lasts forever. Just think about the things that threaten the dominion of any earthly king. He could die with no heir. And then his line is cut short. He could be assassinated by traitors within his own kingdom. He could be conquered or taken captive by some foreign king. Jesus is not vulnerable to any of those threats. He's already defeated death. He's already conquered the grave. He is right now ruling and reigning from the right hand of the throne of God. So don't miss this. The son's eternal reign has already begun. 
concerned too many Christians think that Jesus' eternal reign is going to start at some point in the future when he comes back. Then he will begin to reign forever. What do we celebrate at Christmas? To us, a son was given. And of the increase of his government, there will be no end. The long-awaited royal son came into this world in history and he began to rule and reign and he will never stop. He sits on his throne forever. What has yet to happen is the consummation, the completion of that dominion when every last enemy has been destroyed. But he is conquering those enemies right now by his royal authority. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 26. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For, this is crucial language, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. He is reigning. He is putting his enemies under his feet. And he will go on reigning until every last enemy is under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. When you're raised from the grave to live with Jesus forever, you can be sure the kingdom is complete. Death has been destroyed. Jesus is unrivaled because he reigns forever. And when you are convinced of that, nothing can shake your joy and your faith. Third, look at his righteous rule. Jesus is unrivaled because he rules in perfect righteousness. In verses 8 and 9, the father says to the son, the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. A kingdom that lasts forever could be really bad news if the king is wicked, if the king is a tyrant. A, an enduring kingdom forever might not be good news for the world, but Hebrews 1 speaks not only of the duration of the son's dominion, but also of its nature. How long he rules is one thing, how he rules is another. Just like that throne is a seat of royal power that refers to the king's authority, a scepter is a symbol of the king's authority to act in the world. The king doesn't just sit on a throne, he, he acts. He's the executive. He puts law into effect. He administrates. He judges. He rules. He guards. He protects. That scepter is a symbolic tool that he holds that shows he has the right to judge and to act and to defend his people. The son of God holds a royal scepter and that scepter is called the scepter of uprightness. That's such good news. That defines the moral quality of his administration. He rules rightly. He judges justly. By that scepter of uprightness, he makes right everything that's been made wrong by sin in the world. And the inspired King David, moved by the Spirit of God, his Final words recorded in 2 Samuel 23. He speaks of this very thing. He says, The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. It is a sweet blessing to the subjects of a kingdom 
when the king rules rightly. You have such a king and you are his people. And so his light dawns on you. That rain falls on you to make you live. A righteous king is such a source of sweet joy. And the righteousness of the royal son, it goes deeper than just his, his actions. Not only does he do what's right, he loves what's right. Verse 9, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. He doesn't just keep the standard. He doesn't just enforce the standard on others. He loves it. He delights in righteousness. He abhors evil. And that's what makes Jesus an unrivaled source of joy and security and confidence and hope for you. Because he reigns in righteousness, you don't need to fret over evildoers in this world. You don't have to look at all the evil powers in the world and think, oh no, somebody better do something about that. Jesus is doing something about that. Nobody's going to get away with anything. There are going to be no cold cases, no unsolved crimes, no conspiracies that get away. King Jesus limits evil in this world, and he will right every wrong. There's a day coming when God will judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And Paul, speaking to persecuted Christians in Thessalonica, he's, he points them to this reality, 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 10, the reality of King Jesus and his righteous rule and just judgment. Indeed, God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. And as the only perfect righteous one, he gave himself, offered himself in your place to satisfy the law's just demands so that God could be righteous and just in forgiving you. That's why Jesus is unrivaled. He rules in perfect righteousness. And he guards and protects your joy. Finally, look at his universal supremacy. Jesus is unrivaled because he is exalted above all. Verse 9 says, You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness, therefore... God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. That phrase, oil of gladness, it appears one other place in Scripture. Isaiah 61, verse 3, the Messiah, the Lord's anointed, says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The Lord has anointed me to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. So the oil of gladness here is parallel to this beautifying headdress and this garment of praise, which is all in contrast to mourning and ashes and weariness. To be anointed by God with the oil of gladness is to be exalted by God to unsurpassed, unshakable joy, happiness, security. And to be anointed with the oil of gladness beyond one's companions means the royal son is exalted above every other power, every other authority, every other rival in heaven or on earth. Originally in Psalm 45, the companions may have been a reference to guests at the wedding or maybe other princes in the royal house or maybe other kings from other nations. But in Hebrews 1, when this text is applied to Jesus, it's clear companions has in view those angels to whom Jesus is superior, takes on deeper meaning. 
Jesus is exalted above spiritual powers like angels. One commentator puts it like this. God has poured forth upon him a superabundant joy, both outwardly and in his spirit, such as he has bestowed upon no other king upon the face of the earth. The point is, God the Father has exalted Jesus, the royal son, exalted him far above all others. This was always God's promise to the true king from David's line. Psalm 89, 27, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus himself declares, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. There's no way to make a greater claim of authority than that. Paul says in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And it would seem that there are many who are comfortable with the claim that Jesus has some spiritual authority so long as he, he keeps that authority up there in the spiritual realm because a lot of people just think of that realm as imaginary. Sure, you just you know wear whatever imaginary crown you want to over there. Just don't mess with anything on earth. The area of frequent misunderstanding. People say things like, well, the kingdom of God is spiritual. Yes, absolutely. It is empowered by the spirit of God. Or you hear people say things like, Jesus is neither Democrat nor Republican. It's true enough. He's not a registered voter in America. But when we say his kingdom is not an earthly kingdom, we don't mean it just stays conveniently up there out of our lives and has nothing to say to those of us down here or our politicians. No, his kingdom is not an earthly kingdom in the sense that he does not derive his power from earth. He doesn't have to win an election to have his authority validated. He doesn't care who acknowledges him or not in terms of legitimizing his kingdom and authority. He is the king of all the kings on earth. He has power over every name in heaven, above, or on the earth below. That's why Revelation 1.5 calls him the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. Quoting the Psalms, Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As king, he reigns. His authority is from above and this world is his domain. And every human, every man, woman, child on earth is commanded to honor him as king. Not just as a suggestion, if, if you want to. No, he's king. Worship him. Bow your knee before him. He deserves all glory and honor and obedience. And to those who acknowledge Jesus as the unrivaled king of heaven and earth, there will be blessing and life and joy forever. From the beginning, Charlie Brown knew his own problem. He told Linus, I just don't understand Christmas, I guess. And if you remember in A Charlie Brown Christmas, that gets answered when Linus walks out on stage with his blanket in the spotlight and he quotes Luke 2. Greg prayed from this this morning. Fear not. Fear not. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day 
in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Good tidings of great joy. Turn your heart to that King, the royal Son of God, and you will know that joy to the degree that you see Jesus as the glorious King, divine, eternal, righteous, supreme. Your faith will be strengthened and your joy will be full. Let's pray. Father, it's so gracious of you to speak to us so that our joy is sustained. We are weak, our faith wavers, our joy vanishes, sometimes with just a a word or a look, anxiety riddles our hearts and our minds and Thank you that you speak all the things that could be said or done. You have given us your own son. And you've revealed his glory that we might know him as the unrivaled king of heaven and earth. Would you secure our joy this Christmas week as we look to Jesus, think about Jesus, trust in Jesus, Would you have all of our adoration and allegiance and attention that you might be glorified and honored in us and so that we, oh God, your people might be satisfied in you forever. In Jesus' name, amen.